If you would uh, turn your Bibles, if you have them, or on your phones, or on your devices, to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Or did I say 9 through 11? What verses did I say? 9 through 12. Okay. Uh, Let's pray as we turn our hearts to the Lord. Father, today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray you open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits. And Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. We give you glory and we give you praise. We lift up our hearts to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of a slave look to the hand of his master. As the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to you until you have mercy on us. We need you today. We depend upon you today and we trust you to give us wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. We prayed in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, I want, us to, to want to talk to us about the Magi again. The Magi were this group of magicians from the east that had seen a star and somehow, some way, they saw the star and knew that the star indicated something of significance was happening in Israel. Somehow, someway, it was revealed to them that the star represented the birth of a child who was born king of the Jews. They come to Jerusalem and they ask King Herod at the time, can you tell us where the child is? We've come, we've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. We're looking for the one who is being born king of the Jews. And Herod, when he hears this, he's greatly disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why is Herod greatly disturbed? Because Herod is king of the Jews. Actually, you can turn this monitor off. I don't don't need it. Herod is greatly disturbed because Herod is king of the Jews. And Jesus is his competition. Herod wants to be in charge, but Jesus also wants to be in charge. Isn't it interesting that you and God want exactly the same thing? which is 100% control over your life. (laughs) And what prevents us oftentimes from coming to God and surrendering to God is that God is our competition. Because when you invite Jesus to come into your heart, he doesn't come as a roommate, he comes as the landlord. And often we don't want a new landlord, we want Jesus to just be a roommate. You go into your room, I'll stay in my room, you do your thing. I'll do my thing, and hopefully we can share some meals together, split the rent and the utilities, and we'll make it. Herod was troubled when he heard that one was being born who was the king of the Jews because he wanted to be the king of the Jews. And so he calls the scribes and the chief priests together and he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? And they go and they do their Bible study and they come back. They said, we found it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are smallest among the tribes of Israel, yet out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, who will govern my people Israel. So they said, Bethlehem is the city where the Christ is to be born. Herod comes back to the wise men and says... He's to be born in Bethlehem. I want you to go there and I want you to search carefully for him. And when you find him, I want you to come back and tell me so that I could worship him as well. Now, we come to our text. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. 
And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the place where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary and his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened up their treasures, they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, now let's break this down a little bit. First and foremost, these wise men are are guided by a star. And what the star represents is the sign that leads them to Jesus. You see, each and every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ were guided by a star of some kind. That is, before you met Jesus himself, there was a star that you saw, some kind of sign that indicated that there was something significant about this Jesus guy that you did not see or understand before. The star that guided you to Jesus could be a person. In John chapter 4, Jesus has this encounter with this woman by the well in Samaria, and when he gets finished with this encounter with the woman, she comes to faith in him, and she goes out into the town, and she proclaims far and wide, come meet a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Is he not the Messiah? And the whole town came to the well to meet Jesus. Why? Because they saw a star, that is, this woman was the star. Her testimony was the star that led them to Jesus. And for some of us here today, the star that led you to Jesus was the testimony of someone who met Jesus and their lives were encountered by Jesus and you saw something different in their lives and you wanted to know, was this Jesus real that they knew? And that star led you to Jesus. I had a friend Uh, that I met in Indonesia, actually. And I asked him how he came to know Jesus. And he said, I was an atheist. He said, I was not only an atheist, I was an evangelistic atheist. He said, I was involved in many debates and I turned a lot of people away from their faith. He said, I was a good evangelist for atheism. He said, but then my uncle and my aunt, who were very learned individuals, who were very educated individuals, they went to a revival service and they both had a lot of dental work done in their mouths. And he said, somehow their fillings were turned to gold. He said, now I had heard about that and I thought it was complete nonsense. He said, but I was able to look into the mouths of my uncle and my aunt and see that their fillings had turned to gold. And and he said, they even went to the dentist and got x-rays and the gold went all the way down to the roots And he said, said, it turned my whole worldview upside down. I didn't know what to do with that. That miracle was the star that indicated for him, indicated to him that there was something real about this Jesus character. I heard another testimony of a a man who... um, Excuse me. uh, 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 Well, first of all, we see this in Acts chapter 9 where there was... uh, Uh, Cornelius, the the Roman centurion, he was in prayer one day. He believed in the God of Israel and an angel appeared to him and told him to go and inquire of a man named Peter and that he would tell them the way to be saved. The angel was the sign or the star that led him to seek out Jesus. The, The star 
is whatever it is in your life that leads you to the conclusion that you need to go search for Jesus for yourself. If we come to Jesus, it's because we were guided by a star. And so they follow the star all the way from the east and they get to Jerusalem and then they follow the star all the way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it says when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It's, it's a wonderful thing when you see the star. That is, when you see the thing of great significance that, that convinces you that there's something real about this Jesus thing. That convinces you that this is not just empty religion. That convinces you that there's something real going on here. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. However, seeing the star and seeing Jesus are two different things. Seeing the star is not the same thing as seeing Jesus. Seeing evidence that Jesus is real is not the same thing as seeing the real Jesus. Seeing the testimony of the life of someone who has been transformed by the power of Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus by yourself. It's not enough to see the star. You've got to see Jesus himself. You see, the star is there to convince you that you need to go find and search for this Jesus. The star is there to provoke you to go look for Jesus himself. But a lot of people are satisfied with the star. A lot of people are satisfied with having godly parents instead of desiring to be godly themselves. A lot of people are satisfied with having Christian friends that they can kind of hang out with and hopefully that something rubs off on me instead of actually finding Jesus for yourself. A lot of people are even satisfied being in a Christian church without actually becoming a Christian yourself. Even going to church and hearing messages about Jesus is nothing more than a star until you actually seek Jesus for yourself and ask him to come into your own heart. And, and you gotta, you've got to find Jesus for yourself or else the star is of no effect. That's right. But we're living in a day and age in which people are enamored by the star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy because the star indicated to them that there was something beyond the star that they were about to find. The star had a purpose and it was to lead them to the child. And, and, the, and verse 11 says, and when they had come into the house, they perceived the child. In the Greek, they beheld the child. And when they had come into the house, there's actually in verse 12, there's three levels here, three different things that are happening for them. First, and, and I looked at it in the Greek, it says, and when they had come into the house, they beheld the child, or literally, and coming into the house, they beheld the child. Level two, and falling, they worshiped him. Level three, and opening up their treasures, they presented him with gifts. First, they had to come into the house to perceive the child. Now, I know Jesus was born in a, in a stable and he was laid in a manger. We talked about that. But the moment Jesus is born in the stable, it ceases to be the stable. It becomes the house of God. Wow. That is, the house of the Lord. The house is wherever Jesus is. Yeah. 
If he comes into a nightclub, it becomes the house of God. That is, when we gather here, this is no longer a nightclub. This is no longer the Verdi Club. This is the house of God. Like wherever Jesus is and wherever the people of God come together to worship Jesus, that place becomes the house of God. Coming into the house means coming into the place where Jesus is. They had to, they could follow the star all the way to the place, but they had to come into the house to behold him. They had to come into the house to perceive him. But coming into the house is not simply coming into the physical location. See, there's some of us today who have come into the Verity Club, but haven't come into the house of God. Coming into the Verity Club is one thing. Coming into the house of the Lord is coming into the spiritual atmosphere that is created by the gathering of worshipers who have come to worship Jesus. Coming into the house means opening up your heart. The house of the Lord is a spiritual reality, not a physical reality, because he does not dwell in temples made with hands. You remember when Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites do who like to stand on the street corners and lift their hands and pray out loud to be seen by men. The the Pharisees actually had a prayer that they would pray out loud on the street corners because they wanted to be seen as pious, godly men. And the prayer they prayed was, I thank thee, O Lord, that I was not born a slave. I thank thee, O Lord, that I was not born a Gentile. I thank thee, O Lord, that I was not born a woman. Isn't that horrible? That's terrible. That's like the most horrible prayer. That's the prayer they would pray out loud on the street corners. It's like, it's, it's, it's like hypocrisy 101. I thank thee, O Lord. And Jesus said, don't be like those hypocrites. Because when they pray, all they're, they're not lifting up God, they're lifting up themselves. Don't be like those hypocrites, but when you pray, he said, go into your closet. Now, my pastor, Pastor Robert Daniels, he used to think that that was literal. He used to take that literally, like go into your literal closet. He said, I used to go into the closet with the clothes. That was the, I thought that was the only place I was supposed to pray. He said, so I would be in there with the clothes and, and I'd be on my knees with the clothes and I'd be seeking the face of God. And that's where I prayed. But actually in the first century, First century Israelite houses didn't have clothes closets. Matter of fact, your house only had one room. There were no separate bedrooms. If you had a house, it was one room and your whole family was in that one room. That was it. That's what you had. When Jesus said, go into your closet, he was not talking about a physical location. He was talking about the inner sanctuary of the heart. That place where nobody can see you, where you can find that fellowship with God. Coming into the house is about opening up your heart to come into the presence of God. It's about opening up that inner sanctuary of your heart and letting God come in. When they had come into the house, they beheld him. How do you know that you've come into the house when you begin to behold him? When you begin to see him? When you begin to hear his voice, when you begin to become aware of the presence of Jesus himself, now you've come into the house. You might come into the church building, but you haven't come into the house until you actually open your heart to the presence of Jesus himself. 
And when they had come into the house, they beheld the child and Mary, his mother. I love, one of the things I love more than anything is seeing people meet Jesus for the first time. It's the most glorious thing in the world when somebody comes to faith and when they really meet Jesus. I'm not talking about saying the prayer. You know, I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that our, our job is to get as many people to say the prayer as possible. Because yeah. <laughs> a lot of folks will say the prayer, but they haven't really opened their heart. All they did was open their mouth and just regurgitate a prayer. And then you promise them, now you're going to heaven. No, maybe not. Because maybe you haven't opened your heart. But when there's real genuine faith, like when people really meet Jesus, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so obvious that your dog will know it when you go home. <laughs> like you walk in the house and your dog will be like, huh? <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, it's like it's such a marked change. I'll never forget. There was a there was a young guy who came to our Emerville campus and and uh, he met Jesus one Sunday. And there was, such, he had such, there was such a powerful transformation of his heart. I'll never forget, he called me a few days later in the middle of the week. He said, Pastor, i got to come see you. I, it's an emergency. I said, all right, come on through. He said, I'm on the way right now. Are you at the office? I said, yeah, I'm at the office. I mean, he was urgent. Mm. He comes to the office and he sits down. He goes, okay, Pastor, i got to ask you this question. This is serious. I said, okay. He goes, I received Jesus on Sunday. I said, yeah. And he goes, and you told me that meant that he forgave me of all my sins. I was like, yeah, that's right. And I'm thinking, what did you do? <laughs> what are you not telling me? What are, you, are you about to confess that you killed somebody or something? You know, that's what I'm thinking, right? And he goes, wait a minute. You're telling me that when I came to faith in Jesus, he forgave me of all my sins. I said, that's right. He goes, wait a minute. Does, does that mean... That he's just not going to punish me for them now, but he'll punish me for them later? I said, no. It means that he does not punish you for them. It means that he punished his son for them already. It means he took all of your sin and nailed them to the cross where his son hung on the cross for your sin and tears welled up in his eyes. He goes, wait a minute. You're telling me that because I came to faith in Jesus, all of my sins are gone? I said, yeah, they're gone. And the joy that exploded in his face. And he goes, that's huge. That's the best news anybody's ever given me. And I sat there and I went, yeah, that's huge. I forgot how huge that was. (laughs) I've been walking with the Lord so long, I took that for granted. Yeah, 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 my sins are forgiven. Yeah, blah, blah. No, that's huge. That's not a little thing. That's a big thing. And I had to be reminded of someone who just come to faith. How awesome that is. Do you know what happened right there? He didn't just say a prayer and join the church. He came into the house and began to behold the child. Like, I mean, this guy really had seen Jesus. He started to see Jesus. He started, I had, I, I talked to another person and she said, you know what? She said, I just got this revelation in prayer. Like I was just praying and I got this revelation. I said, really, what is it? I'm expecting something deep. She goes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) She's like, no, that's it. (laughs) Jesus gave us life for our sin. That's crazy. I was like, you know what? (laughs) That is deep. 
The greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, he was asked one time, and he wrote these tomes, these huge theological tomes, and he was asked, what is the, what is the greatest theological truth? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You've got to come into the house and begin to behold the child before suddenly that becomes revelation to you. The place at which the simple truths of the gospel explode into your consciousness and become real to you. And suddenly it's not just religious observance, but it's real knowledge of the real Jesus. And when they had come into the house and coming into the house, they beheld him. They saw him. And then what's next? And falling, they worshiped him. Now falling, the word in the Greek actually means to transition from a high place to a low place. First of all, they didn't trip. Like it wasn't, hey, there's, whoa! <laughs> you know what I mean? This was not like, <laughs> you know, one of those uh, fail army videos. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they voluntarily, as an act of their will, prostrated themselves. Meaning, when they saw him, the logical response was to move themselves as an act of their will from a high place to a low place. That is, the sign that you have actually begun to see Jesus is that as an act of your will, you transition your estimation of yourself from a high place to a low place, which means you situate yourself beneath the lordship of Jesus. They got such a revelation of this baby that they... They saw that this baby was in a manger and they put themselves beneath him. And the only way to put themselves beneath him was to lay down on the ground, on the floor. They fell down and worshipped him. Falling, they prostrated themselves. Proskuneo, there's two Greek words for worship that are used in the New Testament. The first word is latreia, which we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship, latreia. Latreia is actually the term that, that means service. It's what the priests did in the Old Testament. The priests who gave themselves to the service of the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple, that was called latreia. And so you're actually worshiping when you serve God. If you're serving coffee, that's latreia. If you're greeting people at the door, that's latreia. If you're sitting at the soundboard, what they're doing over here is latreia. What the worship leaders are doing at the keyboard and the guitar, every act of service to the Lord is an act of Worship. But the second word is proskuneo. And the word proskuneo means to lay prostrate. It is a symbolic act, it symbolizes complete and total surrender. They didn't just perceive him, they surrendered to him. You see, there's a lot of folks that perceive him, meet him, encounter him, know he's real, but haven't yet surrendered to him. Wow. This is another level. You remember uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What did Jesus say to her? 
Jesus said the day is coming and now is when you'll neither worship on this mountain or that mountain, but those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. And she said, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father is looking for, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And the word he used for worship there was proskuneo. God, the Father is seeking worshipers who proskuneo, who prostrate themselves in spirit and in truth. That is, they're not simply moving their physical bodies. They're not simply assuming a position, but they're actually prostrating their hearts before the Lord. The submission of the heart, the surrender of the heart is the next level. And what often happens is we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we think everything changed. I mean, you come to faith in Jesus, you just say, I'm different. And I will never be the same again, ever. And then one of your homies calls you in about three months when just enough of the joy of the Lord starts to wear off. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden you're back at the club and you're like, what am I doing here? I heard a testimony of a pastor and he was saying, he said, yeah, when I met Jesus, he said, I was so excited about Jesus. I was so on fire for Jesus. And I went over to visit my friend and my friend had the biggest joint I had ever seen before in my life. And he said, my friend looked at me and said, let's smoke this joint. And I said, I can't smoke that joint with you. And he said, why not? And I said, because I gave my life to Jesus and I I belong to Jesus. And I met Jesus and he changed my life and he's my Lord and Savior. And he said, my friend was like, wow, that's deep, man. And he goes, no, don't get me wrong. We still smoke that joint. He goes, (laughs) in other words, there are still areas of my life that I'm learning how to surrender to Jesus. I'm still learning how to prostrate myself in the presence. I'm still learning how to surrender my heart. I met him and it's real. And what happens when you're struggling in some area of your life that you're struggling with? to surrender to Jesus is the devil starts to lie to you and say, well, maybe you never really met him. Maybe you don't actually know him. Maybe you haven't actually come into the house because if you really came into the house, everything in your life would change. Let me tell you something. Everything in your life does not change simply because you met Jesus. There's still a process of learning to surrender your heart to him. And don't ever let the devil convince you that just because you've got an area in your life that you're still struggling to surrender to God, that you don't know him. The fact that you're struggling, listen, if you didn't actually know him, it wouldn't bother you. If you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit when there's some area of sin in your life, that's a sign that you actually know him. Because if you didn't know him, you wouldn't care. But the fact that you care, and if you don't care, if you got sin in your life and you don't care, I would worry. I give you permission to be worried about your salvation. If you got sin in your life that's willful and you don't care. But if you do care, that's a sign that God has not left you. God has not departed from you. He's still working on you. You're simply learning how to surrender. But the devil is always lying to believers and saying, that was fake. You were crying at the altar last Sunday, but it was fake. Because yeah. on Tuesday night, you were at www.whattheheckamidoinghere.com. <laughs> it wasn't fake. That's right. Your encounter with God was not fake. Yeah. It's simply a matter of surrender. Yeah. 
It's simply a place in your life where God is calling you to deeper surrender. And sometimes that's a process. And you know what? That's why we need the fellowship of the brethren. That's why we need fellowship with one another. That's why we need transparency and accountability. That's why we need Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If any one of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, fearing lest you also be tempted. That's why we need, brothers. Listen, one of the most powerful things you could do is come clean to somebody who's a little bit more spiritual than you are. You don't need a perfect spiritual person, just somebody who's a little bit more spiritual than you are to come and say, I got this area in my life that I'm struggling to surrender to God. Can you help me? And somebody who's not going to judge you, who's not going to look down on you. If somebody judges you and looks down on you, they're just not being honest about their own lives. They're just pretending that they never had a struggle before. You know what? Your struggle might not be my struggle. But if I gloat over you because my struggle's not your struggle, that's called spiritual pride. Mm. They came into the house. They perceived him. And when they saw him, when they beheld him, they fell down and worshipped him as an act of their will. God will never trip you into surrender. It's always... An act of your will. It's an act of your will in cooperation with the severity of your circumstance oftentimes. Don't get me wrong. I mean, just ask this dude that we call the Apostle Paul, who was originally simply known as Saul of Tarsus, who was on his way to Damascus to kill him some Christians, inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church, And what happened? The glory of God hit him so hard that God knocked him down off his beast. Sometimes God will knock you off your beast. You still have to, you still have to cooperate with the spirit of God at that point and surrender. (laughs) He'll knock you, meaning when he knocks you down off your beast, he's simply taking you off of the path. You're on the way to do the wrong thing. (laughs) I had a brother tell me one time, he said, Pastor, I was in her bed at one o'clock in the morning praying, Holy Spirit, help me. I said, brother, in her bed at one o'clock in the morning is too late. You should have been praying, Holy Spirit, help me when you were on the way to her house. Help me to make a U-turn right now. And sometimes your car breaks down when you're on the way to do the wrong thing. That's the best thing the Lord could ever do is cause a bolt of lightning to strike your car when you're on the way to do evil. Sometimes the best gift God can give you is to mess up your plans. Just ruin your plans. And the problem is we respond to those situations in the wrong way. Instead of recognizing the grace that God has graciously stopped me on the path to do wrong. Now I'm mad at him for messing up my plans. (laughs) Okay, enough of that one. Moving on. And coming into the house, they beheld him. And falling, they worshipped him. And here's the third level. And opening up their treasures... They presented him with gifts. This is where the rubber really meets the road. Because everything was symbolic up to this third point. Mm. Right, right. Mm. 
It was all spiritual. It was all symbolic. Lord, I worship you. It's a word to a song that I sing. Symbolic. I lift up my hands. It's a symbol. I lay on the floor prostrate. It's a symbol. I close my eyes. You know when you see somebody really worshiping? I remember when my little sister was like five years old and we were at a church and I was doing worship somewhere and, and I looked and my sister was at the altar and she was kneeling at the altar by her. She had run up to the altar and fell on her knees and she was doing this. <laughs> Through the whole service. And when it was over, I said, what was going on there? She goes, I got hit by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> she wasn't doing nothing but lying. She was a... <laughs> She was just playing. She was imitating what she saw other people doing. Sometimes you can go to church and do all that stuff, and all you're doing is imitating what you saw somebody else do. Because that looks spiritual. You just got the constipated look. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. If you look at me during worship, I look severely constipated. (laughs) But it's all symbolic at levels one and levels two. It's all internal. It's not substantial. Level three, they actually opened up their treasures. Their physical, literal treasures. They went beyond giving him a song. They went beyond offering him a prayer. They brought to him their physical, literal treasures. They opened up the things of value. They said when they bowed down and worshipped him, proskuneo, they were making a statement. My life is submitted to you. But when they opened up their treasures, they were demonstrating the validity of that statement. Because the statement of the surrender of the heart without the action of the surrender of the treasure, is empty. It's, as James said, faith without works is dead. Saying, I believe in God, I trust, it's kind of like when I was playing basketball in high school, and by the way, I was good. (laughs) Yes, that was about 75 pounds ago. But I was good. My senior year, I was all league. I was all tournament. I had the second highest scoring title in the league. I was second to the guy with the scoring title in the league. I scored 31 points in a game. My senior year, I was good. (laughs) And it's gone. It's all gone. It was the past. but I can still remember. (laughs) But when I was in the 10th grade, I made the varsity team and I was so excited to make varsity. But I rode the pine so hard I had splinters. The pine is the bench. It's where you, you don't play. You just sit and you watch the game. My cousin was the starting point guard. He was a year older than me. His dad happened to be the coach. But that's not substantial. I mean, that, that means nothing because he really was much better than me. Okay. So he wasn't, he didn't get all the playing time because his dad was the coach. He got the playing time because he was better than me. But with my cousin on the floor, I never got to play. My 10th grade year, I sat and I rode the bench and I watched my cousin play. But I felt like there was a player in me. I felt like, you know, I'm better than this. If they would just give me some playing time, I'll show them what I can do. And I'll never forget there was a game when my cousin was sick. 
And I didn't know he was sick until I got to the game and I was out there warming up and I kept looking around going, where's Chris at? Where's Chris at? And the closer we got to the game, I started thinking, Chris ain't coming. This is my day. Mm. It's like, yeah, I had him tied up in the locker room like that. No, I'm just, no, I'm just playing. I'm just like, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But I thought about it. So, no, I'm just kidding. But I thought I was getting more and more excited. This is my day. This is my game. And I looked up at the clock and there was five minutes before the game started. And I thought, oh, he's got to put me in. I got, I'm the starter. I'm the only other point guard. I'm running this thing today. I was so excited. And I'll never forget 30 seconds before the game started. The coach, he comes walking out on the floor with the game ball in his hand. And he walked right up to me and he said, Benjamin. And he handed me the ball and said, this is your game. I believe in you. And he handed me the game ball. And he went and sat down. And you know what? I ran that thing. I mean, I ran it. I scored like 14 points, six assists. I, I, and we won that game and we killed. I was like, uh, that's what I'm talking about. Put me in the game. I'll show you what I can do. You had me sitting on the bench, coach. Now you realize, son. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. You better recognize. You better put some respect on my name. <laughs> You know, sometimes we we put God on the bench of our lives and we don't actually put him in the game. We don't let him run it. Wow. What if the coach had walked up to me with the game ball in his hand and said, Benjamin, this is your game. Run it. I believe in you. See you later. And took the game ball. (laughs) Had he not given me the game ball, the fact that he told me, I believe in you, run this game as yours would have been meaningless and empty. This is what we do. We come to Jesus with our treasure in our hand and we say, Jesus, I believe in you. I submit my life to you. It's yours. You run this thing. See you later and walk off with our treasures in our hand. We don't actually put him in the game. We don't actually surrender our treasure to him. We don't actually bring him the game ball of our life. We fall down in worship. We proskuneo, but we don't open up our treasures. People are so scandalized when we go to church and we talk about financial giving. So scandalous. I knew it. The church just wants our money. And we don't realize that financial giving is a manifestation of worship because financial giving is the place where the rubber hits the road. It's the place at which everything I said in the song, suddenly I have an opportunity to manifest that and it becomes real. It's where I actually give him the game ball of my life. When I open up my treasures... Do you know what Jesus said? He said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. My money is a treasure to me. And I can't change that. Why? Because my money represents my time, the investment of my time. Every hour that I put into my work, 
I am compensated for. And when I give God my money, I'm actually giving him a portion of the fruit of my labor, of my time, of my effort. It's my treasure. My treasure is something that's valuable to me. And I can either, you know, try to force myself to make it less valuable. I hear people say, I don't care about money. Mm -hmm. I don't care about money. Do you know the luxury of not caring about money? You have to have a certain amount of it in order not to care about it. I mean, if you were standing out on the street with no money and no food and no place to live, you would care about money just a little bit. If I'm not careful, money can be my God. The scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How do I make, you know, it's funny. I used to be scared and a lot of the people of God are scared of financial prosperity. Scared of financial blessing. Scared that I might get too blessed. Scared that God might give me too much. I remember I was scared. For years I was scared. I was scared that God would give me too much and it would pervert my heart. And I would turn away from him because I'm too blessed. I, had, I remember when I was, in, I, was, I was teaching in Bible college and one of the students came from a very wealthy family and he invited the whole class over his house. And it was a baller house in Fremont. Like at that time, a $5 million house was, you know, I mean, now that's like a two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, you know. <laughs> but at that time, you know, in Fremont, that was a baller, you know, you know, mansion house, right? It was baller. And so we go over there and one of the kids in my class, he's like, oh man, the Lord knows better than to give me a place like this. Oh, man, I wouldn't be saved anymore. I tell you what, if I had a place like this, I wouldn't even be walking with Jesus. Oh, the Lord knows not to give me a place like this. And I was so confused. I'm like, why? If God blesses you, you're not going to walk with him anymore. Like, I mean, why? Why would the blessing? But then I thought about it. I said, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, because what if, you know, all of a sudden, like I wrote a book and it sold like 18 million copies and I had like, you know what I mean? Like, what would that do to my heart? Like, and I was worried. I used to be worried myself. All of us have that place where we're worried. And I was praying about that. And I was talking to the Lord. I said, Lord, how do I protect my heart from being perverted by the love of money? Right. And the Lord said, honor me with it. And you'll always be safe. What's that verse in Proverbs chapter 3 says? Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your vats burst with new, new wine. If you make honoring the Lord the first of your financial, pros- your, of your first of your financial priorities is honoring the Lord. It protects your heart from the love of money. Do you know the first time? You know when the, it's the hardest tithe you will ever give is the first tithe you ever give. The hardest tithe you will ever give is the first tithe you give. At first, tithing is painful. And the more money you make, the more painful it becomes. I remember I had a friend, he was like, yeah, when I, I'm going to start tithing as soon as I start making millions of dollars. I said, if you're not tithing on $500 a week, you're not going to tithe on 5000 That's right. That's right. And opening up their treasures, they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
First of all, gold. Gold is a substance that is of value. It is a substance that has an inherent value. They simply gave him a valuable substance. Secondly, frankincense. Frankincense, it changes the atmosphere. When you light incense, it changes the atmosphere. They offered him not only a valuable substance, but they offered him the atmosphere of their lives. Thirdly, myrrh, which is, this is the strangest gift of all. Do you know what myrrh was? It was used to embalm the dead. Not realizing that his destiny was to be offered, was to offer his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. It literally was prophetic of his destiny. Do you realize that when you offer God your financial gift, you're not only offering him something of substance, but it changes the atmosphere of your life. And it is prophetic of the destiny of the house of God. That the people of God are moving towards their destiny because of your financial provision, because of what you gave. Now, all of a sudden, the people of God are moved toward their destiny. How powerful. There's some of us in this room right now, we've seen the star and maybe rejoiced, but haven't come into the house and seen the child. And others of us in this room right now, maybe we've come into the house and seen the child, but we haven't fallen down and worshipped him. And then maybe there's others of us who have fallen down and worshipped him, but just haven't learned how to open up our treasures to him yet. And you know what? What completed that experience for the Magi was following the star all the way to the place coming all the way into the house and seeing the child, falling all the way down to the floor and surrendering their lives and opening up all of their treasures and presenting him with gifts. And I pray this morning that God would open our hearts to see Jesus in this way and to respond to Jesus in this way, that we might know Jesus in this way. Bow your heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, I pray that we would follow the star all the way to the place where the child lays. Lord, you've done so much in our lives to lead us into a place of the revelation of who you are. You're using circumstances and situations. You're using trials and tribulations. You're using pain and trauma. You're using family and loved ones. You're using friends. Some of us, you've moved to the other side of the world. You've used our jobs and you've used our own aspirations as the star to lead us to you. But Lord Jesus, today I pray that you'd open our hearts and open our eyes and open our minds that we might see. And I pray that as we come into the house, as we come into your presence, as we open our hearts to you and we come in, Lord Jesus, that you would become real to us. I pray that that you would give us each and every one a new revelation of the joy of your salvation. That if we've come to faith in Jesus, there's the stuff that we've taken for granted for so long. Make it real to us again. The truths that we've forgotten that we've forgotten how to marvel at. 
How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. But Lord Jesus, I pray that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would rest upon our hearts to come to a place of surrender to you that's more than just symbolic, but that we would open up our treasures. Say, Jesus, here I am. Here I am. I thank you for the blessing, for the privilege it is to come into your house and to offer our lives. Lord, what a great privilege it is to give to you. It doesn't make any sense that I could give to God. But you give me that opportunity. And you give me that opportunity again and again. And what a joy and what a blessing it is. Holy Spirit, we lift up our eyes to you today, Jesus. Holy Spirit, make it real to us today. Make it real to us today. Make it real to us today. Take us to another level of awareness of your presence, another level of awareness of the joy of your salvation, another level of awareness of the fact that you are with us, that, that you're in the room, yes, God. that you've called us and that you've set us apart. Holy Spirit, make it real to us. We open our hearts to you. We ask you to come in. We present our lives to you. We ask you to come in. Come into our hearts as we come into your house. Set us free. Yes, Lord. Set us free, Lord, to worship you. Let's just take just a few moments just to worship him. Just to prostrate our hearts before him. Just a few moments. Set us free, Lord, to worship you. Set us free, Lord, to worship. Set us free, Lord, to worship you. Set us free, Lord, to worship. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the words spoken today and plant them deep in each and every heart like seed. Water them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let them bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and 100 fold. We give you all praise, glory, and honor in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we seal each and every heart. We speak protection over every mind and over every soul. May the word spoken that's been scattered, let it not be scattered on the road or among thorns or among stones, but let it fall on good soil and let it bring forth fruit. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you dwell among us. And we give you glory today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.